This morning, uh, we are going to be in somewhat of a topical sermon. It's going to begin where we left off last week in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Recall that last time we were together, uh, we focused upon these first two verses of 2 Timothy 4, considering the minister's commission. Though this commission is found primarily in verse 2, we spent some time getting the groundwork for it in verse 1, and in verse 1, Paul wrote this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul reminded Timothy in relation to his commission, in relation to this charge, that God was going to judge both the quick and the dead, exhorting Timothy to faithfulness on the basis of the fact that the God of heaven was watching and that Timothy would be judged in accordance with his faithfulness. And I defended Paul's statement about God judging the quick and the dead by going to two passages of scripture which support this teaching that though the condition by which a man does or does not enter into eternal life is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, every man is also going to face a judgment day and he will have to give an account for his works on that day. Now there's a great deal of mystery surrounding this in the Bible, so much so that we have a number of uh, doctrines in various uh, sects of Christianity that have arisen in order to attempt to account for the fact that though there is this very real teaching of belief, salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, there is this warning of judgment. As a matter of fact, this is where the Catholic doctrine of purgatory comes from. It comes from the, 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 an, an attempt, and it was, a, it was an, an incorrect and undoctrinal attempt, but it was an attempt to reconcile the fact that Jesus compels those who are his followers to be ready for a day whereby they will be judged while simultaneously reconciling it with the fact that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, and the furnished work of Jesus Christ alone. And so purgatory was a, an attempt at doctrinally explaining these things. We also see this with a number of, of uh, sects of, of Christianity as it relates to losing your salvation. That because they see these warnings about faithfulness and the necessity of faithfulness and falling short of faithfulness, and they are attempting to reconcile this with an understanding of the Christian life, an understanding of the gospel, they do so by recognizing the gospel by, faith, by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, but simultaneously adding to it a layer of being able to give up or to lose your salvation as a means by which to reconcile this day of judgment. Again, I would... Uh, believe, and we would believe that to be an incorrect doctrinal application or an incorrect attempt to explain these things. So this morning, uh, in relation to what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I'm going to show you some of the teaching on these things and, and then uh, speak to a nature of reconciliation. It's not, going to be, um, it's not going to be a completely clean explanation. And what I mean by that is this. There are some things we simply don't know. And the reason why we don't know them is because God has not seen fit to tell us. He's told us what to expect, but he's not, he's not put all of the pieces together for us to be able to understand how it plays out. And as I just mentioned, there are some people that are so uncomfortable with, with, with these unknowns that they have to fill in that gap somehow. And by filling in that gap, they add things that are unbiblical. They add surmisings. They add um, uh, maybe natural or logical leaps, things which are completely outside of the context of the Bible in an attempt to explain these things and in doing so quite often undermine other doctrines in the process of attempting to explain the things that God has seen fit not to tell us. But there is enough for us to get the point. And there is enough for that point to compel us unto a certain subset of actions which are unambiguous and definitive in our lives. And that's what I want us to see today. And we're going to work through this topic the same way we would work through anything in the Bible. We always take, this is, this is how we interpret the Bible. When we're reading the Word of God, we have things which are clear and we have things which are not clear. We have things which are, which, which pre are presented to us in in clarity and unambiguously. And then we have things which have more mystery surrounding them, which we have to piece together a little bit more. And when you're reading the Bible, we always ought to be determined to take what is clear 
and to establish first what is obvious and clear, and then to interpret what is unclear or ambiguous in light of that which is clear. And again, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble if we take it the other way. If we take things that are clear, and then because there are things that are unclear, we try to reconcile those things that are unclear, and we build up a scenario whereby what is unclear can be made clear, and in doing so, we threaten what is clear with what is unclear. And now we've undermined clear doctrine, unambiguous doctrine, by ambiguous doctrine, or those things that lack clarity in the scriptures. So we're going to use what is clear to help us understand both the meaning and the limitations of what is not clear. So we come to something that is not clear, and I, I may read and I may say, you know what, I don't, I don't understand what this means. This is not clear. And I can't find in the Bible any more clarity. But I do know what it doesn't mean because of what is clear. Right? So I can rule out immediately certain things. I know it doesn't mean this. I know it doesn't mean this. And I know it doesn't mean this because the Bible says this in clarity. And then from there, I might have to throw up my hands and say it could mean this, it could mean this, it could mean this because none of these contradict anything else in the Bible. And I don't know which one and I might have to live there. I might have to live in that place and I might have an idea or I might have an opinion, a strong opinion even, about which one is right. But while simultaneously acknowledging the Bible's not clear enough to know one way or the other. So we don't start with the things that are ambiguous and use them to interpret the obvious. We start with the things that are obvious and use them to interpret the ambiguous. And what I'm compelled to do first then is to remind us about the clarity of the nature of eternal life. This will lay the groundwork for the distinction between the Bible's teachings regarding salvation and damnation and the Bible's teaching regarding judgment. And I could do numerous weeks on this. Initially, I was thinking I might do two or three weeks on this, but I, I really don't want to do that. So I'm going to try to give you everything that, that, that I can in one message today. We'll leave it there. If you have any more questions, by all means, uh, of course, come and see me and we'll, we'll try to clear things up. And what we understand without ambigu ambiguity from the scriptures is that eternal life is a work of God. It is accomplished in the lives of those who believe on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That this work of God is independent from my merit. This work of God is independent from my worth. And this, in, this work of God is independent from my efforts. We know that, right? The Bible is excessively clear on this point. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is very clear. This is unambiguous. That, the, the work of, uh, that salvation is a work of God through his finished work that, is brought, uh, that we are brought into by grace, by God's grace, through our faith in that finished work. It is a gift of God that no man will be able to boast on that day. And this definition harkens back to the simple clarity that Jesus gave to Nicodemus. You're all familiar with John 3.16. I like to give John 3.16 through 18 together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I apologize, the font has done something strange on the screen today, so if things are a little bit out of format, um, that is why. So far, I think so good, um, but it might be a little smaller than usual. So John writes here what our Lord Jesus told to Nicodemus that God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And then we see in verse 18, for uh, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We see this in clarity. Unless there be any confusion about the relationship between works and faith, Jesus would go on to say in John 6, verses 28 and 29, People came up to Jesus and asked him in verse 28, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What do we have to do to do the works of God by which to enter into eternal life? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. 
Salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. So that when we stand before God one day, the standard for condemnation and forgiveness will not be our efforts, but whether or not we have received by faith Christ's efforts on the cross as sufficient to cleanse us of our sins and to secure for us eternal life. We spoke of this last time in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15, where we found that the books were opened and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the men were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. And so we saw this distinction between the books of our works and the book of life. And so we recognize that there is that book of life and those found written in the book of life are the ones uh, that enter into heaven and those who are not found written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. And we see as testimony throughout Jesus's ministry, throughout the book of John, throughout the gospels, throughout the epistles, that salvation is a work of God by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So then we understand from the outset that belief in Jesus Christ is the sole condition by which a person receives eternal life. And to clarify this, belief does not simply mean to know something in one's head, right? or to be in agreement that something happened. There are plenty of people that agree that Jesus lived, that he was a, a wise man, a good man, a good teacher. Some that will acknowledge that Jesus is in fact God in flesh, acknowledge that he died, acknowledge that he rose again, who will not be written in the book of life. It does not mean that I agree that something happened or that I agree that Jesus existed it means that I commit myself wholly to the realities and the implications of Jesus Christ's life and teaching so that the man who believes the gospel invests his full faith and hope in the reality that they cannot save themselves, that their only hope for eternal life is what Jesus did for them on the cross, no ifs, ands, or buts, no plan B. Jesus is the only way, and I have invested my heart and my eternity in the reality that Jesus is the only way. Now we've established this. Now let's talk about those books of Revelation 20. Last time we were together, we went to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, where we read this, verse 9, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We found this warning, which Paul gives to the believers of the church there in Corinth. And he acknowledged that every man will answer for the things that he has done in this life. This is not a singular claim in scriptures. Much to the contrary, the gospels and the epistles are filled with warnings and promises that mankind will be judged for his works. But it is important to understand the context and the nature of this judgment as well. We've already established, though perhaps briefly, that our works will not form the basis by which we enter into eternal life. So then if eternal life is off the table as it relates to our works, what else matters? Right? What else matters? This is an unfortunate trap into which believers fall. To think that, okay, as long as I'm going to heaven, what else matters? where we have this imbalanced focus that we put on the moment of salvation itself. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not minimizing the moment of salvation. We talked about this a little bit Tuesday night. I'm not minimizing the passing of death unto life. I'm not minimizing the glorious reality of the new birth, by any means. But let us also be clear that there's more to eternal life than just entering in. If the teachings of the word of God hold any bearing upon our understanding and our motivations, then the manner in which we enter into eternal life needs to be just as important as to whether or not we enter in at all. It must be. Pastor, I don't really understand that. No, I, I don't know that I do either. And we'll see that as we walk through. But, but it's, it's, it's as true as anything else that we see in the word of God that it matters. It really, really matters. And this demands for many a fundamental rethinking of how we view eternity, but also a careful rethinking of what the Bible says about it. 
The fundamental rethink of eternity is something which any number of Christians have done throughout history. As I mentioned, sometimes the good effect, sometimes the ill effect. Sometimes this has compelled people unto righteousness. Sometimes this has compelled people unto false doctrine and fear. But we need, what we need to do now is walk through what the Bible says and then understand where we stand in light of it. So we have seen Paul acknowledge in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, that there is coming a day when God will judge both the quick and the dead. This quick meaning the spiritually alive, the dead meaning the spiritually dead. This has nothing to do with uh, those uh, who are bodily alive or dead, but rather those who are spiritually alive or dead. And he will do this at his appearing. And then, of course, we have here 2 Corinthians 5 that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What else do we know about this day of judgment? One of the clearest insights in the epistles into this day is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. I reference this one quite often. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verses 9 to 15, the Bible says this, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. So here we have a picture of reward and loss. And we have this picture given through the illustration of various building materials which would contribute to the building of, to the construction of a building of some sort. And the foundation of this building, Paul says, is the only foundation that exists with any merit. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. This is not only the gospel, but this is all of sound doctrine, right? The foundation is the work, the life, the teachings of Jesus Christ, Jesus and his apostles, the word of God. That is the foundation. The foundation of the church, of any Christian life, the foundation of knowledge is first the gospel and secondly, sound doctrine, which accompanies the gospel. So that's the foundation. The question is, what are you going to build upon it? Once you have that foundation, once you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, once you are, are assimilating sound doctrine into your life and you're a follower of Christ, what are you going to do with what you have? Paul says that he, as a wise master builder, has sought to lay the foundation of that building through the teaching and preaching of the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, teaching sound doctrine. Then Paul says, now you who have heard my teaching, who have seen this foundation laid, that's what we're doing here every week. Every week I get up and I'm laying that foundation. I'm, I'm one of those master builders, in a sense. I am preaching the gospel. I am teaching the word of God. I am giving you the gospel. I'm giving you sound doctrine. I don't get to choose what you do with it, though. You choose what you do with it. And I choose what to do with it for me. Paul says, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. What are you building, Christian, upon the foundation that you have? You know the gospel. You know sound doctrine. What are you building with it? What does your life look like? What is the, the structure of your life looking like? Every week you come here, give or take, and by God's grace, I give you more building materials. And that's my job. I'm giving you more material. I'm giving you, I'm, I'm, I'm showing you what the gold, the silver, and the precious stones are by which God would have you to build the structure of your life on the foundation of his word. But only you can decide, not just if you're going to build, you're going to build, but what materials you're going to use to build with. There's the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. But there's also wood, hay, and stubble. Now the picture here is that which is eternal and that which is temporary. The eternal things of this life are 
those things which we do for heaven, those things which we do which will last, those things which we do by faith, those things which we do in obedience and in righteousness. Those are pictured as the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. The things which we do for ourselves, the things which we do that you're not in faith, the things which we do in selfishness, the ways that we serve ourselves, the ways that we live only for this life, only for the temporal, only for the immediate pleasure, only for the immediate gratification. This is wood, hay, and stubble. It's all adding to your life, Christian. You can't just, you can't just say, well, you know, I do those things, but that's not really who I am. Yes, it is. If you're living in, in, in a life of living for yourself, of self-indulgent, this is a part of who you are. It's a part of the building that you're building upon this foundation. And Paul reflects upon just how much this matters because there's coming a day, the Bible says, where these works will be made manifest because the day, this would be that day of judgment, will declare it, where your works will be declared. And God's judgment, which is regularly pictured in the scriptures as fire, right? When we see uh, the, the, the visions in John and Ezekiel and whatnot of, of Jesus Christ, his eyes are like fire. His feet are like fire. A sword comes out of his mouth. We see this picture of judgment and of fire falling upon mankind in judgment. And this is a picture Fire is a picture of judgment, of purification, right? And the Bible says that there's coming a day where God will judge the works of men. And the picture is a picture of fire. Now, if we are building upon the foundation of our lives with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire of God's judgment falls upon that structure that we've built, When the fire subsides, there will only be a certain subset of those materials that are left, right? Only the things that are made of gold, silver, and precious stones. The wood, the hay, and the stubble is going to burn right up. And so as Paul gives this picture of how we're building our lives, he is saying, build your lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and then build it in such a manner that when the fire of God's judgment falls upon the works, which will be declared on that day, that your works will pass through that fire and make it to the other side as reward. The things that we've done for ourselves, the things that we've done for the temporal will be burned up. The fire of God's judgment will fall upon those works, and the only thing that will remain are the things that had eternal value, the things done in faith, the things done for Christ. Now let's talk more about how we know what things will pass through the fire and what things will not on that day. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the name of Christ, uh, uh, excuse me, happy are ye, I, I had a little duplication there, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is coming that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls unto him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Peter warns us that the time is coming, and notice what he said, that judgment must begin at the house of God. That's a fearful statement, isn't it? Judgment will not begin with the unbeliever, Christian. Judgment will begin at the house of God. 
And as Paul wrote in, second, uh, in 1 Corinthians, when the fire of God's judgment falls upon the works of we as believers, some of us will have quite a pile left of gold, silver, and precious stones. Some of us might have very little to show for it, but be saved yet so as by fire. The idea there being by the skin of our teeth, right? Scarcely saved. Saved, but very little reward. And both Paul and Peter deeply compel their readers to care about those rewards, to care about what we're building in this life, to care about what's happening today, not just about whether or not we're going to end up in heaven. Peter uses two realities to speak to this idea of judgment. Firstly, that this would comfort the hearts of the believers in the midst of their suffering. Don't, don't lose sight of that here in 1 Peter, right? It is a message of comfort, knowing that the unbeliever will be judged and knowing that we have an eternal home in heaven. But secondly, to compel believers to live out the fullest realities of Christ, to be willing to suffer for Christ, to be willing to live for Christ in the midst of persecution, to be willing to honor there is the, uh, the authorities in their lives, even when their authorities are uh, doing wrong by them. And Paul, sa- Peter, excuse me, here says, if we must suffer, if indeed you must suffer, let it not be for those things which are going to burn up in eternity as a murderer or as a thief or as a liar or as a, as a busybody, but let it be for righteousness sake so that when you pass into eternity, at least there's the gold, the silver, and the precious stones awaiting you on the other side. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, tells us directly what it is that pleases God. He says, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody, but suffer as a Christian, right? That's the, that's the distinction Peter made. Don't suffer as, a, as an evildoer, as an unbeliever. Suffer as a Christian. What does it mean? What does it look like to do so? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What is it that pleases God? What is it that brings about in us the realities of this reward? What is it that, that, that lays for us in heaven gold, silver, and precious stones, not wood, hay, and stubble? the things that are done by faith. And we'll be getting into Hebrews here in a couple of weeks and have an opportunity to discuss in a while when we get to Hebrews 11, what faith looks like. You've been through Hebrews 11. We went through it on a Tuesday night, not too, on Tuesday nights not too long ago. What pleases God are those things that are done in alignment with God's promises and God's expectations. Not just what we do, but the heart and the spirit with which we do them. And Jesus gave, gives us a clear example of what this looks like, the difference just between doing stuff and doing stuff by faith in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this, Take heed that you do not your alms to be seen of men, uh, uh, before men, excuse me, to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy hand, thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So Jesus says here that even something as biblical, if you, kind of, if you want to use that word, as giving to the Lord, or as praying, is not in itself, does not hold just within the act itself merit. 
It only brings about spiritual merit, spiritual reward to the degree that my heart is aligned with my Father as it relates to these activities, as it is not hypocritical, not self-righteous, or not manipulative in the outworking of those virtues. It's all well and good to give alms. It's all well and good to pray. It's all well and good to do those things. But the only way that these things have spiritual reward, spiritual merit, is when they are done not just what God has asked, but done God's way. That's where reward is found. And notice that Jesus uses that word, reward. The reward is only to those who give or pray in faith. In faith. Not for self-righteous means, not for manipulative means, not for hypocritical means. In faith. God's way. Jesus would go on in verses 16 through 18 to say the same thing about fasting. When you fast, don't, uh, don't, don't look miserable as if you're fasting and everyone says, oh, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting and you know, gaunt expressions and whatnot because what you are doing is you're doing this to be seen of men, which means you're not doing it for God. You're not doing it as, a, as, as an outworking of, of, of your spiritual relationship. You are doing it as an outworking of your self-righteousness to let people see you as something. To present yourself before men in a certain way. To receive man's applause. To receive man's con uh, commendations. To receive man's opinions. And see, we can't fool God, can we? I can fool you and you can fool me. We come and we clean ourselves up on a Sunday and we dress up all nice and we come here and we put the smiles on our faces and we look good and we sound good and, 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 and whatever else that, that it is. But, but, but the manner of you sitting in that seat today, whether you're here simply to be seen of men or whether you're here to be seen of God, God knows. I may not know with you and you may not know for me, but God most assuredly knows what is in your heart, Right? There's no spiritual reward simply in the act of alms or the act of praying or the act of fasting, but only to the extent that that fasting, just like giving or praying, is actually an exercise of faith. And those who exercise this in faith have their reward. Those who exercise self-righteousness, judgmentalism, false hypocritical piety, their reward is the results of their self-righteousness. So if I make, for pretense, a long prayer. Now, I'm not exactly a short prayer, right? You all know that for those of you that are here on Sunday mornings, like today. But if my long prayer is by pretense, in other words, if I aim for a long prayer simply to make a long prayer, simply to make you think I'm godly, the only reward that I get for that prayer is your opinion of me. It is a, a carnal and temporary action in a, in, a, in a biblical or a, a religious context, but it's a carnal, temporary action in order to stimulate a carnal and temporary response. And to whatever degree I get that, I, I do that action in a carnal manner, whatever carnal response I get, that's my reward. Don't expect anything from God. But to whatever degree I, and again, you know, when, when, I, when, when we pray publicly, you say, well, pastor, this says go to your closet. It does. The idea there being, it's me and God. So even if I'm praying out loud publicly, even if I'm leading the congregation in a prayer, metaphorically, if I can say it this way, in my heart, I'm praying to God. I'm not praying to you. I'm praying for God. I'm not praying for you. I'm not performing. And to whatever degree I'm performing, again, I'm, I'm lapsing into the carnal. But to whatever extent our prayers before God are right, in faith, there's a reward there, right? Now, for the sake of time, I skipped verse 6 within the, uh, this, uh, I, mean, I, I skipped past verse 6, 7 and following here. Jesus continues in verses 7 through 13, giving us that model prayer. And within that model prayer, and just afterward, we do find another layer to this idea of judgment and reward that I also want to introduce you to. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, during the model prayer, oftentimes considered the Lord's prayer, Jesus added, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Luke, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that have trespassed against us. 
And then he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Notice the cause and effect given here. That if I do not forgive men their trespasses, I should not expect my Father to forgive me my own. But if I forgive men, I can expect the same from my father. Now, Jesus is speaking to believers here and we've already laid the foundation. This is why we always take the clear and we use the, uh, the, the clear to interpret the unclear. We know we're not talking about those who go to heaven and those who don't because that has nothing to do with my works, right? Salvation is by grace, by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So I can set off of the table the idea that the way that I treat a brother uh, is going to determine whether or not I go to heaven. But that's okay because we know that there's a whole nother day of judgment, right? There's the, there's the, there's the, the, the opening of the book of life and there's the opening of the books. So why, why must we assume that, that when Jesus says that the Lord will not forgive you your trespasses, that, that he's speaking of the, the, the book being opened? Why, why would we not assume that he's speaking of the day when the books are opened and we are judged for our works. Jesus is speaking to believers, indicative of at least the fact that he calls for the listeners to speak to God as their father. Of course, John 1.12 explicitly stating that the only people who are the children of God are those that have believed on his name, but as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Every person on this earth is a creation of the true and living God. Only believers are children of the true and living God. And Jesus said to his followers, those who had believed on his name, that if they don't forgive men, they will not be forgiven. Within the context of what we are learning today, we must understand that Jesus is not speaking about judicially having our sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and so inheriting eternal life, but rather that, as we have seen throughout our time, about our disposition on the day of judgment. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. Perhaps most clearly expressed in the Luke passage, Luke 6, 37 and 38. Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Shall men give into your bosom. For with what same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. This is not karma. We're not talking about karma here. We're not talking about some sort of uh, cosmic justice whereby everything must remain in balance so that if I give a certain amount of money, it's, gotta, it's gonna have to be given back to me. Jesus connects in a reward fashion the manner in which we treat others in this life with the manner in which God will treat us. When? On the day of judgment. And this too gives us a picture of the nature of what it means to do things in faith. What is it that is considered gold, silver, and precious stones? What is it that is considered wood, hay, and stubble? What we found is that prayer or almsgiving, fasting, the nature of our assessing of actions and consequences can either abound in our lives unto reward or abound in our lives unto loss depending upon the disposition of our hearts towards God and others. Depending on whether or not we're going to do these things in faith or do these things in the flesh. And so what do we see here? Judge not that you be not judged. Condemn not that you be not condemned. Forgive and it shall be forgiven. What does this look like? Well, I have a, a, a theory. I'm not going to say that this is, remember, we're dealing with some things today that are not entirely clear. Here's my thought. There's coming a day. There's coming a day where you, where, where you will be judged by your works. There's coming a day where, where the judgment of God will fall upon the wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones of the things that we have done in this life and only those things that are done for God will last. And on that day, there will be a measure of mercy. There will be a measure of judgment. There will be a measure of condemnation. There will be a measure of forgiveness. And a part of that will be in measure to how we have disposed ourselves towards others in this life. And that seems consistent with what we see in the Word of God. Again, this is, this is a me putting pieces together here. 
right? So this is not something I'm going to one chapter and verse and telling you, thus saith the Lord. There's a measure of opinion here. There's a measure, a measure of me putting the pieces together here. But if you, on that day of judgment, now we know, that, uh, we know that when the book of life is opened and God is deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, that will be based upon whether or not you believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's not a lot of wiggle room there, right? There's not, there, there's not room for mercy and judgment and condemnation and these sorts of things. Your, your name is written in the book of life or your name is not written in the book of life. But there is also a day of judgment for our works. Why would it not be that all of these these elements of Jesus saying that there's going to be this time of judgment and, and show mercy that you may be shown mercy and, and judge not lest you be judged and condemn not lest you be condemned. Why would that not connect closer to the day of reward and loss than the day of heaven or hell? Makes much more sense to me that as I carnally judge men and I hold men up to my own standard and I stand over men and I condemn them and I impose upon them my thoughts and my expectations, God is looking at that and saying, there's coming a day where I'm going to treat you the way you treated him. There's coming a day where you're going to feel from me what that person is right now feeling from you. The one difference being God will be righteous <laughs> and we certainly aren't. So we've seen that there is a separation in biblical teaching between having a home in heaven and the rewards that will accompany us. The next question, pastor, what are these rewards? What are these rewards? You say, live for these rewards. The, the pictures of gold, silver, and precious stones. What is this value? Jesus says that if we do these things in secret, not to be seen of men, that the Lord will reward us openly. What are those rewards? Well, some of them we know. We just read them. God says, if you show mercy, you'll receive mercy. To what measure you meet, it shall be meted to you. Okay, so we, so we know a measure of that. Others, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what those rewards will be. Jesus spoke in certain parables about a, a master, a king going away to receive a kingdom and leaving with his servants responsibilities. And when he gets back, he, gave, he gives those servants a number of cities to judge that wasn't corresponding to their faithfulness while he was gone. This is supposed to be a picture, a call for us to be faithful while our Lord is gone. Many have surmised thus that in the days of the kingdom, when Jesus Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom, that God's people will be given cities in accordance with their faithfulness to rule over in God's kingdom. Possibly, but there's no direct teaching on that in the word of God. So we don't really know. This is inference, not fact. I'm going to be doing a lot of that today, as you see, because we don't have the clearest picture. We know almost nothing about these rewards outside of illustrations and anecdotes. Gold, silver, precious stones, cities, uh, mercy, these things. But one thing that is abundantly clear in the Bible, make no mistake about this, is just how much you want whatever those rewards are. See, Jesus calls us to live by faith, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I heard that somewhere recently. That's a, that's a joke. I memorized that this last month, right? I hope it, I, I, I hope it ticked in your mind when I said it. Um, <laughs> We walk by faith, not by sight. Is it, is it surprising at all then that when God says, I've got rewards for you, and he says, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have come into the heart of men what God has prepared for them that love him, that these things are exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Is it any, is it any surprise that God would say to the faithful, See, what I want you to do, I want you to do in faith, Christian. So I'm telling you this. There's a reward for you. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to give you illustrations. I'm going to give you anecdotes. I'm going to give you a flavor. I'm going to give you the earnest of the Holy Spirit to give you a, a taste of what heaven's going to be like. You know you want it. I've told you you want it. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. You can see the shadows of it. You can see the silhouette of it. Now live for it and, 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 and know. And know that it will be greater than than, than 
than anything you could possibly imagine? Is it any wonder? Is it, is it surprising that God would not tell us so that we have to exercise that faith? See, because that's the reward, isn't it? It's the reward for faith. I do this with my children sometimes. Sometimes it's because I don't know what the reward will be yet. But one way or another, I say, children, there's going to be a reward. We've got a long drive ahead of us. It's a 16-hour drive to Nana and Papa's. You are good. There will be a reward on the other side. What will it be? It's a surprise. Just do, do right. It doesn't matter what it is. You do your part. I'll do mine. Right? I don't, I don't want them to condition whether or not they're going to obey on what the reward will be. I want them to condition it upon the fact that they trust and love their father. And their father has said, you're going to get something, so do right. God hasn't exactly told us what it's going to be, but it's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. People have often talked about how they think of heaven and streets of gold and the worshiping and whatever else. And, and, and of course, especially among little children, they kind of get this idea of it's going to kind of be bored there, right? Uh, it's going to be boring there because I, I'm sitting before the throne, people in the crystal sea, worshiping God all day. Uh, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And, and we get this idea. We don't know what heaven's going to be like. Obviously, the gates of pearl, the streets of gold, the foundations of stone. We talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago. We don't exactly know how literal that is or how figurative that is, uh, how much that's simply supposed to be there as, a, as, a, um, as an, a, an explanation of the grandeur, the glory, and the majesty of it, or, or whatever it might be. But, but one thing, again, we know for sure, that there will not be even a microsecond of heaven, and, and I use that term simply to relate it to us because heaven is eternal, which means there's no time there. There will not even be a microsecond of heaven where you will feel anything other than absolute satisfaction. Where, where, where there will be anything other than complete joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Something which, which we have never even experienced in full in this life. We don't know what that's going to feel like. We don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what our body is going to be like. We don't know what capabilities we're going to have. We don't know what is going to fulfill us and not fulfill us. We know what it does in the human sense. So God has sought to relate those things to us in a human manner, through riches, through rest, through food, through the things that satisfy us in this life. We don't know what that's going to look like in the life to come, except we know this. It will be abundant, it will be complete, and it will be beyond what we could possibly imagine. And this pours from the pages of Scripture, especially from Jesus' teachings. And what I'd like to do thus is walk through a little bit of Jesus' teachings on this. We'll connect this, and then we'll finish up. There's a couple more things that I'm not going to get to today that have actually been bouncing around in my mind that I didn't write in my sermon just as I'm preaching it that I might need to address next week because there's something very important that I overlooked in my sermon today that I think I need to talk about in full. Um, so we might pick up again with this next week, though I wasn't intending to. But let's continue for today. Luke 12, verses 35 to 40, Jesus teaching. He gives a parable and he says this, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Be clothed and have the lights on. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Did you hear? Did, did you catch the pronoun reference? I'm actually going to go back here. Look at verse 37. Look at the pronouns. Okay, so we have a Lord and we have his servants, right? He and them. He the Lord, them the servants. Look at the pronouns. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Do you realize what he just said there? That the master will gird himself, make the servants sit down and eat, and will serve the servants. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, right, in the middle of the night and find them so, find them ready, find them girded, find the light on, find them ready to serve their master. Blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house uh, had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be therefore ready also for the son of man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Jesus' primary point here, be ready for the master's return. 
night or day, just like a good servant who is always ready so that when his master comes, he's ready, he's girded, his light is on so that he can serve, so that he can wait on his master. This is what a good servant does. We don't know when the master is going to return, so we need to be constantly ready. That picture there of the thief, if a man knows what hour a thief is going to come, then all he has to do is post a man during the time that the thief's going to come. Thief is going to come at 2 in the morning. I can sleep until 1, get up, be ready by 2. I can scare the thief away, be back asleep by 3. I hardly even lose any, any sleep, right? But see, the thing about thieves is that they don't work that way, right? They plan when you're not ready, so you've got to always be ready. You've always got to have, you've always got to lock your door, you know, walk around, make sure your doors are locked at night, make sure the lights, the right lights are on, the right lights are off. Everything's ready because you don't know what's going to happen. Have your lights on, Christian. Be ready. And there's a reward. And the, the thing that I marvel about about this reward is that he says that the master will gird himself and sit the servants down and serve them. Be ready. And for those servants who are watching, who are waiting, who are ready for the master's return, those servants will be blessed, but only for the vigilant. Notice the ambiguity, though, of this parable. We don't really know what this means in practical terms. What does it mean that, that the Lord is going to gird himself and serve the servants? What does that mean for our relationship with the, with the Lord? I don't know. Maybe you do. I, I haven't figured it out yet. We don't really know what this means for eternity. We don't really what, know what this means as far as rewards are concerned. But I know this. I want it. I want it. Peter then asks Jesus a, a question in verse 41. Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? Is this, is this just for your disciples or is this for everybody? And Jesus actually then gives a second parable where he, he, he broadens it to everyone. This is just for his disciples, clearly. But he broadens it. And, and the Lord said, verse 42 to 48, who, is, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth in his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidservants, and to eat and to drink, to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. In this parable, Jesus goes beyond just the good and prepared servant that he spoke of before, and he speaks to several other categories. He begins with that faithful and wise servant who will be made a ruler over the Lord's household and be given his portion of meat in due season. Blessing, honor, provision, reward. This is the faithful servant's inheritance. But then we see several other categories. We see uh, the servant who is false. We see the servant who is unwilling, and we see the servant who is ignorant. The false servant is the one who claims a connection to the Lord, but there's only damage done by him. He's only there to steal and to harm the servants of his Lord. His portion will be appointed among the unbelievers and he will be destroyed. This is reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in thy name? In thy name do many wonders, in thy name cast out devils. And I will, I will reply unto him, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. This speaks very much so to those in 2 Peter chapter 2, in Jude, those false teachers, those, false, those, those um, false prophets, those who lead God's people astray, those who know exactly what they're doing, those who claim to be a servant of God, those who know the things of the Lord, and yet who are using those things for material gain to subvert the body of the believers, to beat God's servants, to destroy God's servants, to steal from the Lord's heritage. They'll be appointed with uh, their portion with the unbelievers. Read Jude and, and, and see, see the kind of judgment that is awaiting them on that day. It is fearful. Then we see the servant who knows his Lord's will, well-educated on what his Lord expects, but is lazy, apathetic, 
selfish, decides to live for himself rather than live for his Lord. He doesn't beat the servants of his Lord. He doesn't steal from his Lord. He just doesn't do what he's told. He's just not interested. Jesus says that man will be beaten with many stripes. That would have, of course, been a common consequence in the day among servants and slaves for their failures. This is judgment, is it not? Notice he's not disowned as a servant. Notice he's not given a portion with the unbelievers. But he is judged. And then there's the ignorant servant. This is one who is the servant of his Lord, and his Lord has laid out in the book everything that is expected of him, but he never really looked into it, and maybe he was led astray. Maybe he uh, was told by another servant that this is the way it's supposed to be done and he didn't know any better. Maybe he never had a lot of context. Maybe uh, for one reason or another, he, he's ignorant. He's legitimately ignorant. Not apathetic, not, not lacking the desire, simply ignorant of his master's will. You know, he's going to be judged too. But notice he'll be judged with, beaten with few stripes. Because you're significantly more responsible before God for those things that you've been told, for those things that you know full well. God's not going to hold us to the same accountability as someone who knows exactly what he's doing if we're doing it in ignorance, because God is just. And in this, we do find a picture of judgment, do we not? Those on judgment day who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those servants as well who were apathetic and they will on, on the day of judgment see the pile of their life be whittled down to a very small amount of rewards because the things they did in this life they did for themselves and not for their Lord. And then we'll see those who are ignorant and whatever it means that they will be beaten with few stripes that day will not be as sorrowful and fearful for them. All of this, however, intended to turn our eyes back to the faithful servant. See, Jesus didn't spend a whole lot of time on those others because those others really don't matter. Because everything in the word of God funnels us toward be a faithful servant and you won't have to figure the rest of that out. Right? Now, there's a few things I did not speak to this week. We are judged by our works. We are judged by the things that we've done in this life. But there is this definitive point in the life of every Christian where they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, where old things are passed away and all things are become new, what we call being born again. How do the things that happen before that point and after that point factor in? I'm not addressing that this week. I think I'm going to need to speak to that next week. There's a second thing that's come into my mind as I've been preaching this that I desire to uh, speak to next week as well. And that is about the unbeliever. See, we talked about how the false doctrine of purgatory has built up around these things and various other elements. We know that the unbeliever will, will, has his part in the lake of fire. And that's because of what's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But did Jesus not also say, Woe unto you, Bethsaida, Chorazin, for if the things that had done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for them than for you. What, what does that mean? I think we'll talk about that next week also. So we'll come to the, back to this next week, though I intended not to, and we'll find clarity on a few more of these things. But for this week, our focus is upon reward. We don't find clarity this week, nor am I going to be giving you clarity on what those rewards or those stripes are. I cannot tell you. I do not know. I don't know that the Bible tells us. I have not found it yet. We don't know what the authority and the provision for the faithful will be. We don't know what the stripes will be for the unfaithful men. We know full well what the destruction is, right? That's the lake of fire. But what I want us to remember today, what I wanted to bubble up to the surface today is that there is coming a day of judgment. And it will not be a judgment as to whether or not we will enter into heaven or hell. That is found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Whether you've, If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by placing your grace, your, your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you, you, you are a believer. You are born again. You will have your place in heaven. But there's also 
a day when the books of our works will be open and we will be judged from them. And the manner and the disposition which, which, with which we enter into eternity does matter to God. And it ought to matter for us. The call then is not just to live in anticipation of heaven, but to live this life for heaven. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. When Jesus spoke of eternal life, he spoke of abundant life. This is not simply an outworking of going to heaven. This is not a destination. This is a condition. Abundant life is a life lived in the fullness of divine provision, divine presence, divine relationship. You may enter into heaven and be saved yet so as by fire. And in my mind and in your mind, you say, yeah, but if I make it into heaven, what does it matter? It's all there. Like there's, there's contentment, there's peace. Yes, it's true. The Bible says it. And yet the Bible also says that there's something about these rewards. There's something about the, this disposition toward God, the manner in which we enter that matters. Don't let that go lightly. Don't ignore that because it's here. And we know it's here. That is the life more abundantly. That is the true eternal life teaching. We don't know the day or the hour of God's arrival. We don't know what the reward will be for our vigilance, but we know on the authority of Scripture with full assurance that to whatever degree we are willing to step out in faith and live in light of Christ's sure return, the only regret we will have on the other side of eternity is that we didn't believe it more. So the call is to inherit eternal life, Christian, not just to inherit heaven. Paul called Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 in light of the fact that Jesus would judge the quick and the dead at his appearing to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to rebuke, reprove, and exhort with all longsuffering and with all doctrine. And the call is for us to do the same. So two questions as we close. Number one, are you in the faith? The Bible says that we are sinners. You have sinned, I have sinned, and because we have sinned, we have been separated from God. That separation is something that we can do nothing about in ourselves. We are separated because of our sin. We have already sinned. We are already judged. He that believeth not is condemned already, John 3, 18 tells us, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's nothing that you can do to earn your way, to work your way, to be worthy of heaven. And in trying you are in fact scorning the sacrifice of God on your behalf. See, because the Bible says that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that you cannot earn your way to God. You cannot be righteous uh, enough to, to, to enter into heaven because you've already sinned. But Jesus Christ was righteous. He never once sinned. He never once did anything that offended the word, the will, or the character of his father in heaven. And yet he gave his life. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. His blood was spilled to pay for your forgiveness. And that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that nothing that you can do can make yourself worthy of heaven, but that Jesus did it all for you and fling yourself on the mercy of God by believing in full faith and trust what Jesus has done for you, you will be saved. Jesus didn't just die, did he? Three days later, the Bible says he rose from the dead, showing that he has victory. He has power over sin, power over death, power over hell, that he can do everything he's promised he would do for those that would believe on his name. If you've never believed on his name, we talked about judgment today in the context of those who are believers. What is the day of judgment for the believer? Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the unbeliever, but The end result, when the book of life is opened, those that are not found written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. Again, it's a picture. A place of eternal conscious torment and separation from the life of God. We live in a world that is surrounded by God's fingerprints. We live in a world that, that has the church, that has believers, that has creation, that has 
God's uh, 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 common grace, not one of us can even fathom what it would be like to be utterly separated from the life of God completely. That is the lake of fire. It's a condition for which no man was ever intended and unto which we would not wish on our worst enemy. And if you are not sure that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, make today the day. Say, Pastor, I still don't quite understand. Come see me. Ask me questions. Make sure you understand. Because this is not just about life or death in, in, in the temporal sense. This is about eternity. Then for you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know that, that you will be in heaven one day. I hope that today's message can begin to readjust if readjustment is needed. Your thinking on the nature of eternity. We get this idea in our mind, once I'm saved, I'm in, I'm good, I'm fine. Once my children are saved, oh good, they're saved, they're fine. We, we've done our job wrong. How will you enter into eternity? What will that day of judgment when the books are opened, what will that day look like for you? How are you living? What are you building upon the, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ today? Is it wood, hay, and stubble? Those things which when, when the, the judgment of God falls upon them will just burn up and you'll have a pile of ashes? Or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? Will it endure the trial by fire? Will it endure God's judgment on the other side and end up being eternal rewards, whatever those look like, whatever those might be? Are they going to be yours? Are you striving for them? Do you want them? Do you see how much you ought to want them? Are you living for them? Are you faithful, Christian? Are you faithful? Are you doing those things that are defined by faith? May God help us to do so. May we be among those who get to hear those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.